0: I don't know what's more effective: me yelling into the mic or just standing here quietly and letting everybody look at me. Good morning, everybody. Our reading today is from Genesis 22, verses 20 through 24. Now it happened after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, "Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor: Uz his firstborn and Buzz his brother." and Camil, the father of Aram, and Chezid, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jadlaf, Jade and Bethuel. And Bethuel was the father of Rebekah. These eight milk of boar to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And his concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, Gaham, and Tehash, and, and Mekan. These are the very words of God. Blessed be the word of God.
1: 490 B.C., a period of time when not many of us are familiar with the events that occurred. But we do know a couple things about that date. We know that it was known for the Battle of Marathon. It was fought between the Persians and the Greeks, the Athenians. At the Battle of Marathon, it was the city-state of Athens that came to the defense of the Greek peninsula to stop the Persian army from invading. Led by Miltiades, the general of the Athenian Athenian army against King Darius of the Persians. The Athenians were greatly outnumbered. The results of the battle were surely given to the Persians. Yet, one of the most amazing things occurred. They succeeded in defending the land against this massive Persian army. They had stopped their advance into Greece. But the problem still arose that the Persians were pretty good at war. They had sent a fleet around the peninsula to attack the city of Athens. So although there was this great victory that occurred, there was still a massive loss that could happen. The problem was the city of Athens didn't know that they had won the battle on the plains. And at the city of Athens, they were ready to surrender to the Persian navy. But this great victory had been won And so, Miltiades, the general, sent Phaipodes to Athens. Phaipodes ran 26 miles to the city of Athens to tell them that the victory had been won. And he arrived just in time so that they would defend the city and they successfully did. They did not surrender. It would be a turning point in the war against the Persians. And Phaeipides, according to legend, died as soon as he gave the message. It was a most well-timed message that assured victory for the Greeks. And that's the introduction to today's seemingly short section of scripture that we've run into in Genesis the story or the recording of Nahor's family tree. Nahor's family tree. I've titled this message as Good News from a Far Off Land. Good news from a far off land. It's a section that marks a distinct change from the previous verses. Within this section, we will see, uh, we will discover who Nahor is. We will talk about Nahor's family tree. And we will talk about the reason for Nahor's family tree being mentioned right here in the scripture, seemingly out of nowhere. So this Nahor, we, we need to discuss who he is. But first, we need to think about where we came from to get here. And as I mentioned just previously, that this is a distinct change from what we had discussed in the previous weeks. The faith of Abraham had been proven, not against his will or to prove that the Lord, to the Lord that he was worthy, instead it was proof even of and to himself of what he believed about Yahweh, about the Lord. What he believed about the Lord's promises is set forth. The change comes because this seemingly disassociated family of Nahor, uh, it, it seems disassociated from everything. We last heard of Nahor in chapter 11. That was the last time we heard of this brother of Abraham. And we recall that he was the son of Terah. Now, I know what you're thinking. It sounds familiar. I know we talked about Terah, but it's been so long since we spoke about those things, I can't quite place who these people are. So let's turn back just for a moment or two, back to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And as we look at, as we turn slowly to Genesis chapter 11, we look there, we want to also think about the family line of Shem. Shem was one of Noah's three sons. One of the three sons that had been elected by God to survive the flood. Three sons surviving the flood. Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. They came out of the ark into the land of Canaan. Genesis 9, 18 tells us that. It says, now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now just a note, where does Abraham live right now? He lives in the land of Canaan. He lives in the land of Canaan. We want to recall that there was the drunkenness of Noah. Even believers can sin. The drunkenness of Noah and the sin of Ham that came about when he pointed out the nakedness of his father in Genesis 9.22. And then the curse that followed him and not his brothers, the curse that followed him and not his brothers, Shem and Japheth were okay, but there was a curse that followed Ham. Genesis nine twenty five says, or excuse me, nine twenty four. Then Noah woke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done to him. So he said, "Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers." And he said. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So that kind of sets us up as we slowly move into 11 as some reminders of what we find here. Chapter 10 tells us what happened to those families of each of those three sons. Importantly, we remember That the line of Shem is the line through which the seed of redemption, who is Christ, will come. That seed of redemption that is promised in Genesis 3.15. That thread, that scarlet thread, as some say, that runs from one end of the scripture to the other. Never lost, never forgotten. It, it binds that whole entirety of the scripture together from one end to the other. These are not misplaced stories or just oddly placed stories that are in here. They tell a complete picture, as I said before, every page revealing more and more about the redemptive nature of what God is going to do. All of life is either curse or redemption. All of life is either curse or redemption. You are either found in Christ or you're not. You are either cursed or redeemed. Keep that in mind at all times. So as we come into 11 what we find out about Nahor is that he is a son. In chapter Genesis chapter 11 verse 27 we find these words. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Now, if you might recall, if you were here many, many months ago when we talked about that, we talked about how, interestingly enough, that Lot was, was, was separated out in this little verse. And now we have five verses uh, that tell us about Nahor in here. We find out about Nahor. So, we know the problem with Lot. We know how he ran where he chose to live in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah in the plains. We know that he was rescued not only once by Abraham from being kidnapped, but he was also rescued by the Lord from Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that he had two daughters, and of those daughters, we remember that when he ran from Sodom and Gomorrah that they lived in the hills, in the caves of the hills. And that's part of the problem with Haran and Lot. We know that the daughters desired husbands, but there were none to be found. Literally, God had rained, fire, and brimstone down upon the cities of the plains we know that they got their father drunk and they each had incestuous relationships with their father to get pregnant. And we know that because of that, they would, be the, uh, they would be the mothers of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And all we don't need to read far in our scripture to find out the problem with the Moabites and the Ammonites is that they will be a consistent problem for Israel. A consistent problem for Israel. And you could say to yourself, well, if we're talking about Nahor as a son, why are we talking about Lot and the daughters? And I give that to you for the reason why is because of that line, there will be no chance of the redemptive thread that runs from beginning to end to come through. It is a cursed line. It is not appropriate for the seed to come through that line. We get these stories in the scriptures so that we rightly place ourselves, not only we, we see the good, but we see the wrong. We see what should happen and we see what shouldn't happen. We see where God's redemptive plan is going and where it will never go, right? And of course, when we read about Lot and the daughters, we see some similarities with our patriarch Abraham taking things into his own hands. But God's plan, God's perfect timing for blessings, his perfect timing for blessings uh, comes about in Isaac is born. We come right off that section. So We put that there as a place marker. We see we we see some things there that we we find out where Nahor was the son of. Uh, we find out where he has come from. We uh, we establish ourselves, or we establish the fact that he is Nahor does not is not in the cursed line that has been given, right? Or the curse the line of the curse, right? He's different than that. But we also find out. So he was a son. He was a brother. Right, and he's a husband. In verse eleven twenty nine, we find these uh, we find these words where it says, "Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. To Milcah was, and the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. Ah. So, we know then that Abraham moves away into Canaan with Terah and Lot, but Nahor stays behind in Mesopotamia. We're thinking the way that the, the countries were laid out back then, that the distance between Abraham and his brother Nahor was anywhere between Four, five hundred miles and a thousand miles distance. No email, no mail system, no text messaging. Literally, when you're in that distance, you have no communication. No communication. So that's where we get a little bit of his family tree, a little bit of how it, how his family tree comes into being. Because then in verse 20 of the verse that Roy read out of Genesis chapter 22, we find this. It says that he is a father. It says, now, now it happened after these things, after the things of Isaac, after the proofing of Abraham's faith, after after, you know, and again, I cannot stress enough that this proofing isn't proving to God who Abraham is. It's proving to Abraham who God is to Abraham. It's proving to Abraham who God is to Abraham. In other words, his faith has been tested. He has gone through the testing. It is proofed like yeast that you add to warm water and sugar to see if it's good. After a little bit, if the yeast is good, it foams up and you know that it's alive and well, similar to the proofing that occurs to Abraham here, not for God's benefit, but for Abraham himself's benefit. But after these things, after the things of the Isaac sacrifice, on the heels of the faith of Abraham, a messenger arrives proclaiming good news. Out of the blue, seemingly, a messenger comes, God's timing is perfect. Perfect. God's timing is perfect, and it's perfect in his blessing and in his sovereignty as he gives. This good news, and you might say to yourself, how is it good news? We're going to find out. It is the good news that Abraham's brother, Nahor, is a father. Remember, Abraham is living in the land of Canaan, the cursed area, the Canaan where they will serve Abraham's people. They are separated again by four, five, six hundred miles to a thousand miles away. And out of these things, after the sacrifice of Isaac, where God provided the ram, this man comes, unnamed, who says, and that he told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. You have nephews and nieces. We have nothing for 11 chapters from Nahor. And now all of a sudden, after all these things occurred, after the issues with Pharaoh, after the Battle of the Plains, after Sodom and Gomorrah, after the sacrifice, now this person comes in God's perfect timing to say, by the way, your brother has kids. Nahor has children. At least 60 years have passed since he's heard from Nahor. And think about this. When last we saw Nahor, Sarah was barren. They had no children. They couldn't have children. Nahor has no idea that his brother has any children. One legitimate, one illegitimate. One of the curse, one of the promise. So many things have changed when they left. Abraham is now wealthy, not only of physical goods and land, but also of the promises of Yahweh, of the Lord. He has a covenant with the God creator of the universe. All in all, there's good news that has come. Abraham has nieces and nephews, previously unknown to him. It would be like finding treasure. Because Abraham lives in the land of Canaan, the cursed land. And he has a son through which the seed will come, the son of which he knows has been promised to be a great nation. He's made the mistake of trying to have children of his own will. He knows God has promised the right way and now in God's perfect timing it comes that Nahor has kids right after Abraham's faith has been proven right it is a blessing provided exactly at the right time when it was needed a blessing provided exactly the right time when it was needed So we find further down in that Genesis chapter 22 passage that Milcah, his wife, the mistress of the house, the true wife that he has, has borne children. In verse 21, well, excuse me, of those of those of those true—that's the true wife. We can't we can't forget that. We see the problems that happened with a, with a, with a concubine before with Abraham we have the true wife Milka and then we have we're going to have to talk about the concubine at the very end the lesser wife which would be Ramah. not lesser in value but lesser in relationship to the promise of redemption just because we a good reminder here just because the bible shows us even patriarchs that have multiple wives and or concubines doesn't mean that it was authorized by God. It does show that God has allowed this thing to occur for his purposes, but it doesn't mean that he approves of what men and women do just because it's written in the Bible. We know what's right. We talked about this in Sunday school because God tells us what right is. But we do recognize that the Bible is full of things that men and women do that are against God's wills. Yet he allows these things to happen so that his glory May they be, be displayed. So in these verses, we find 12 sons. Verse 21, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, kemuel the father of Aram, and Kesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Did, Didlath, and Bethuel. Right? We find these, these sons laid out. Eight sons are mentioned there. Eight sons of which we will only hear of one again, Bethel the eight sons to the true wife. And then we find in verse 23, and Bethuel was the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And his concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba and Gaham and Tahash and Meshkah, Seriously, none of these sons are going to be mentioned again. They're mentioned right here. This is it. The sons of Nahor are mentioned here, except the only one mentioned again will be Bethiel. But the rest of the sons are not mentioned. We could say to ourselves, well, you know, why are they here? Is it pointless or, or whatnot? And I would say to you, it is fully for a point because it's God's infallible and errant word. He has placed these sons in here in this family tree to show the credibility of the family tree, to point to the proof of the family tree, to say to themselves that Abraham could even go to these sons and confirm everything that there is in them. That they are recorded for God's purposes. We might not know exactly why those names are, but we know it's important because it's God's word. And I believe it. But there's one daughter that's mentioned, Rebecca. And it's not only that one is mentioned, the fact that any daughters are mentioned in the family tree. It is unusual in the ancient cultures for daughters to be mentioned. And I find it curious when I was thinking this morning about this that it seems like the Bible is the only one that's pretty consistent in mentioning daughters out of ancient history. That's because God values the women like he values the men. Unlike ancient society where the women were seen as lesser, the women are seen as equals. Different roles but equal value. We always must remember that. We also must remember that the threat of redemption, the seed of redemption does not happen without women there. Now it is not to say that that Nahor didn't have other daughters. Most assuredly, when you see this list of names, he probably had many other daughters, but there's only one daughter that's important, and it's Rebekah. And we remember that this story, this narrative that is given about the patriarchs is given to Moses to say, to show how we got to where we're at, and Rebekah is the important one. She is the one not of a cursed line. She is the one of the true wife of Nahor. She is the one that lives in Mesopotamia, not in Canaan. She's not like the daughters of Lot. She is not like they are. And it's a key component to the redemptive plan, Rebecca is. Turn with me forward a little bit. We'll talk about it in a few weeks, but turn with me to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. Verse 2. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who ruled over all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. We will talk about that with oath taking later on in the next couple weeks. And I will make you swear by Yahweh, by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live and you will go to my land and to my kin and take a wife for my son Isaac now spoiler alert it's Rebecca but we'll talk about that more later the longest single chapter in Genesis Uh, the longest single chapter in Genesis about Rebecca but this is it Rebekah's mentioned in this part of the family tree. God says to Moses, you must know this. You must know that Nahor had all these sons, had some to concubines, and he had this daughter. And this daughter is very, very important. This daughter is Rebecca. And this daughter was born at the exact right time for the blessing that was to come. God's timing is perfect. It is never wrong. It is never late. And it's never early. It is exactly when it happened. And when the good news comes after these things occurred, it is exactly the right time for the good news to come. To a man, Abraham, who has his righteousness counted for him, the one whose faith has been proved, that's the key. That is a key component. Isaac needs a wife. It cannot be from the people of the curse. It cannot be from the Canaanites. That's why, the good t- why it's good tidings. It says it's good news. I come bearing good news. Now this messenger doesn't know that there's a, there's a wife problem going on. I just want you to know the good news that your brother has kids. Sometimes we could say We see God acting. There is the way that is absolutely 100% true, the good news that his brother had kids, but there's a more full way that we're going to see revealed of why it's important too later on. And it's because of Rebecca as the wife. Rebecca as the wife. At exactly the right time, news was delivered that would prove key to the plan for Isaac. She will become that wife. So, we see in here, we want to say, so what are the reasons for this family tree then? I think we touched on a couple of them, but maybe we need to expand a little bit. We need to uh, add some bookends to it or whatnot. I mean, it be- this beginning of the section, this next section, will begin with the death of Sarah and end with the death of Abraham. Next week will be the death of Sarah. And then a few weeks later, it'll be the death of Abraham. It just begins this whole new section that goes on here. This whole new section. It signals that change. And the change is it's no longer about a promised son. See some shadows here, right? The promised son has come. The promised son has been proved, for example. The promised son has been offered as a sacrifice, yet, a ram was provided. The relationship with the Lord has been proved that Abraham has. We can say, maybe I don't quite understand about this proven faith. But we could consider one other part of the Genesis narrative. As we come into this story about this proven faith, we see that major failure in Genesis 3. And maybe this will hit a little bit home. What we discovered in those pages, and I'm going to steal from Bavink on this one. Uh, the theologian, is that Adam loved his wife Eve more than he loved God. Adam loved his wife Eve more than he loved God. He chose Eve over the creator. He chose what she could offer over what he promised. The cause of the fall was disobedience and wrongly placed love or affection rather than right love focused on the Lord and then everything else receiving benefits because of that right relationship. I've told many people uh, that if you are in a relationship, if you are married, if your relationship with the Lord is not right, your marriage will never be right. It'll give illusions of rightness, but it will not be. Your main focus has to be on God, must be on God, must be on what the Lord Jesus has done. And here Adam placed that wrong focus on Eve and the fall happens. As I mentioned in Sunday school class today, what we find out and what happens with Adam is that the statement that love is love is a lie. It's not love, just because you say it's love or just because you think it's love does not mean it is. Rather, misplaced love is not love at all. Right, right, Misplaced love rather than placing it first and foremost on the Lord is disobedience to the Creator because He defines what love is, not us. Man does not define love. And what we see in Isaac is we see that. With the sacrifice of Isaac, we see love rightly placed. Because Abraham loved his son more than anything but God. He loved the Lord more. He knew that Isaac came from God, not from his desires. He knew that Isaac was a gift from the Lord, and the Lord can giveth, and the Lord taketh away. He had matured in his relationship with God. Notice how the sacrifice of Isaac occurs when Isaac is a young man, not when he's a little baby or a little boy. It occurs through a great maturing that is occurring with Abraham. He is growing in the knowledge of the Lord in the promises that are there. He has seen the Lord come through consistently with his promises. And so when it comes time to sacrifice, I believe it, Lord. (laughs) Right? That's all we can say. I believe that you want to sacrifice my son. I trust that you are going to provide the seed through him, but I believe you want me to sacrifice my son, and I'm going to listen to you because I love you more than the thing that you have given me. So we see disobedience in this world because we love the given things more than we love the giver. We sacrifice the giver for the given things. We look at the things that had been provided by God's love greater than we look at the God who has provided them. And so, but here, Isaac and Abraham Abraham trusted in the Lord and it was counted as righteousness for him. He trusted in the Lord when he says, we to the servants are going up to the mountain and we will return the whole of the whole way, every step with the knife at his side, binding his son, trusting that the Lord will provide. I believe it, Lord. The Lord does. In that story, we see love rightly placed. In that story, we see love rightly placed. Now, if we connect now, where uh, where Adam failed, Abraham was successful. Where Adam had wrongly placed love, Abraham had rightly placed love. Whereas Adam sought his own desires, Abraham did not withhold his son from the Lord. Just as God said, He was a father who did not withhold his only begotten son. Just rest on that a little bit, mull that around. So this new section then is the start. So now we're moving away from Abraham and we're starting on Isaac. It's the thread of the seed that will save. Abraham is decreasing in the story and Isaac is increasing. That's what we see. And we see God, sovereignty and timing and blessing. God's sovereignty and timing and blessing. At the right time, the message came from a far off country. At the right time, God provided a ram when it was necessary. God provided because it's his plan, not man's plan. God is going to provide a wife for Isaac because it was the right timing. Every time, up until this point in time, we see man going off on their own. We see man being disobedient, and things go wrong. And we could say here, too, the good news is is that God is still providing. He hasn't stopped. He's not the absent watchmaker who winds it up and takes his hands off. He is still providing. So we're going to see that line of redemption still being drawn out, that thread being pulled through the Scripture. We're going to see that that progenitor of that line of his spouse cannot come through through the line of Ham, cannot come through the land that surrounds, not come through the Canaanites, and it certainly can't come through Lot's family tree, which is super suspect, right? God will provide. Abraham trusted, and now the messenger from the far-off land has come. His brother, who is not a Canaanite, has had children. And Rebekah. So therefore, more than just another genealogy, or just what we just think is a genealogy, what we see is God's sovereignty in his activity in creation. The God who created everything for his glory and continues to do all things for his glory. The God who continues to work his plan, The God who is over time and who does his work in the fullness of time. When the time is absolutely right, for example, the moment you were saved was exactly the right time, I would suggest you don't look back in time and say, I wish I was, because there is no wishing to go back in time and wish you were saved earlier. The moment that God chose to save you was the exact right time for his glory to do so. And his timing is perfect. His timing is perfect, and his blessings are perfect. The son here needs a spouse, and the good news came from Mesopotamia, 500 to 1,000 miles away. And we said before, and we also know that every name that's mentioned in this genealogy is important because it's God's infallible and errant word. That doesn't mean we need to look at the names of the sons and then try to find some hidden meaning. The Bible is not a mystery book. The Bible plainly speaks to what it tells us about, and it tells us about God's redemptive plan. And the vast majority of everything that you read in the Bible could be understand, clear, understood clearly at the first reading. You can see exactly what God is doing. You can see exactly what is happening. Therefore, we don't need to chase hidden meanings in in seemingly unknown genealogies that are here with only one name that we know. The sons are not uh, like a, like like keys to a treasure map that we need to unlock something. Rather, they just they point to the validity of that family tree. And they attest to their sister Rebecca. And all of it points to the preeminence of God's plan to redeem from beginning to end. This should give us great hope in God's provision that he does provide and continues to provide because God does not spare his only son. He provides so that all who believe in the son will be saved. John 3.16, God so loved the world he gave his only son, don't forget the next part, that all who believe will be saved. 2 Corinthians 6 2, which is quoting out of Isaiah 49 2 Corinthians 6 2. If you just turn there a moment, I slowly make my way there too. I'll start in one, and working together with him, we also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you, behold, now is the acceptable time, behold, now is the day of salvation, now is the day of salvation, now turn to Romans 5, turn to Romans 5, Man, there's just so much in here, but Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For at the right time, at the exact right time, Jesus does not come in every generation, he comes once, once and for all, to accomplish exactly what was meant to be accomplished, To save all those that God has deemed to be saved. So we look at this family tree in Nahor and we should say to ourselves, isn't God amazing that exactly the right time this good news came? And isn't God amazing that exactly the right time I heard the good news? The sheep from a far off land when I heard the gospel and responded and I lifted my head and I came to the great Shepherd who is Jesus, to the Jesus who who God didn't spare. Isn't it amazing that God has given us this, this whole book that tells of his redemptive plan from beginning to end? Not one errant word in the scripture. Not one word out of place, but everything that points to the amazing thing that God has done to save men and women. And he saves completely. And he saves fully. And I would be remiss if we didn't close on Romans 8. Starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son But delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. He is the one who, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? I would stop and say, place your love in Jesus first and foremost above everything else. Will affliction, or turmoil, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your love solely and firmly in Christ Jesus, first and foremost, above everything else. Trust in the Lord that he saves completely, trust in him, what he shows through these these ancient texts, how it speaks to us today, how the good news has come to you and has opened your heart to hear about Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Trust in what God is doing. Trust in his perfect timing and his blessing. Let's all bow our heads. God, we come to you sometimes, these, these seeming, these, these, these narratives, these genealogies, they, we just don't know what they say to us. We must sit and we must ruminate on them. We must see how the connections that are there, but they are plainly there. They tell us, like this one does, the story of Rebecca, the wife that will be for Isaac, the one that is provided by you, that the seed of redemption will come through. We trust in your plan, God. And we say, like the man said, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. Please help to strengthen us, to guide us, to instruct us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.